just like to say thank you to our music team for leading us up to this time in our service where we can focus on God's word. Thank you very much for that uh, very thoughtful set of worship tunes. And Jason and Tracy, welcome home. Um, I am one of those advocates that says, um, you know, when the preacher gets two weeks off, he should get two weeks off. And I'm even surprised that he's up here this morning. But I, you know, I hate it when preachers have to go away, they preach the last Sunday before they leave, and then he's expected to preach the Sunday he comes back. <laughs> Something wrong about that picture. And because I'm an advocate of it, I am probably a target. <laughs> and, and I'm happy to be up here that maybe God can use me this morning. As Jason said, we, we talked several weeks ago about this sermon topic, and, and I, was, I clarified it with him <clears throat> after a couple of weeks of wrestling with the, with the topic. He says, so it's trusting God with our money, right? Yeah. And you know, I have wrestled with this. It's like putting a square peg in a round hole. And I think God has been guiding me, saying, no, that's not a fit. And I go over here and look in Scripture. No, that's not a fit. And yesterday... The 11th hour, I finally got it. This, the title doesn't make sense. Trusting God with our money. It's, it's really about trusting God with his money. And, and, and if, if it's trusting God with his money, how come we get so grouchy about it sometimes? <laughs> I mean, n- not that I would ever do that. <laughs> But, you know, you go through these mental gymnastics of calculating the checkbook, making sure that it's all going to add up at the end of the month. Looking at a long-term retirement, RSPs, how much can I get away with giving this month? 10%, well, that's the Old Testament teaching, right? 10%, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, I always thought 10% was a little bit awkward because if the guy that made $100,000 got 90 to live with, the guy that lived on... Nine thousand dollars. If you only made ten thousand dollars, where's the justice in that? <laughs> but that was kind of how God had set it up in the Old Testament. But there's not a lot of that kind of new teaching in the New Testament around giving. It's not based on percentages. It's really based on generosity and compassion, and our willingness to submit ourselves and what we have to the Lord. So let me, let me give you this little pre-say to, to this morning's message around the gymnastics that I, mental gymnastics that I wrestled with, trying to get the subject and the title to fit. Um, so as I mentioned, trusting God with our money doesn't, doesn't seem to work because it, if we understand lordship, if we understand lordship, and I'm not sure that I do, and I think I need, somebody needs to speak on this concept of what does it mean to us to have God as Lord of our life. I think we lose something in the translation from how we live today with what the early Christians understood that concept to be. What does it mean to have Jesus as the boss? The Lord. What does it mean to have Jesus as the one who owns everything? That when we give our lives to him, we gave him everything. <laughs> That's a tough concept for us. And, and, and most of us, certainly me, wrestle with this idea that, but I need to manage it well. 
I need to be careful that it lasts. Well, trusting God is more than fire and life insurance at the end of the day. It's about trusting him with everything we are each day of our, our life. And it, it's a real challenge. And so the, the idea that I came up with, and this is nothing new, is that we are really the stewards of what God has given us. I mean, that, that is obvious to us as we read Genesis. That God made us stewards of this world to care, to, to protect, and, and to look after the world that we live in. Another illustration might be that we are the trustees. Thank you, Janet. She can tell I'm a bit cotton mouth this morning. Um, that we are the trustees. This, this pile of resources that we have is... I'm going to knock that off. This pile of resources that we have <coughs> have been given to us to manage. They belong to God. And he has given us a directive to use those gifts, talents, resources, according to his purposes. We are only the managers. And so the, the idea of trustee works for me when it, talks, when, when it comes to talking about money and the kingdom. <clears throat> and another example is that we are the investment brokers. That God gives us those resources... And our job is to invest them into kingdom work for his purposes. And hopefully they bring a return. That return may not be um, two times the cash, but it might be kingdom benefits. It might be treasures in heaven. <clears throat> and so I think in the future, sometime we need to explore what it means to, to be under God's lordship to be under Christ's lordship. But this morning, I'm just going to focus on trusting God. It just so happens that the passage I chose to look at this has to do with money. So nobody has left yet, so I think we're safe to move on. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Jason talked to us about the church at Pentecost? Very exciting time. In, in the early church, where the, the new, new kid on the block was the Holy Spirit, and he was working and moving amongst the people. 3,000 people came to the Lord that first day. An amazing uh, uh, first day, an amazing start to the church. <clears throat> and, and there was a bit of a cloud over the Jerusalem church, and that cloud was poverty. And we, we see in the new church that they gave that people who had wealth and means were able to share with those who who didn't have. And it was a a marvelous thing. But if you flash forward two or three years to Paul when he's writing his second letter to the church in Corinth, we find that Paul is still collecting money and gifts as he travels throughout Asia. He's collecting um, an offering to take back to the church in Jerusalem. So obviously... You know, the issue of poverty continued to be a concern <clears throat> to Paul and to the Christians around that part of the world. <clears throat> so in this second letter of Corinthians, Paul begins to talk to the church at Corinth about their gift. And he uses the church in Macedonia as an example. 
And I hope that this morning we can glean some truths. We can glean some insights about how this church in Macedonia was able to take this gift in the circumstances that they were living and offer it so freely and so willingly to Paul and Titus so that the people in Jerusalem could have money to live on. So he was collecting this money to send back to Jerusalem for that church who was very poor. Well, we're just going to take it step by step. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and we'll be walking through this verse by verse. So that's the context. Paul is talking about this gift offering that he wants to send back to Jerusalem. And now, brothers... Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. First of all, this isn't one little church that got a great idea, we're going to take up a collection. This is a whole region of churches, and we take some of that for granted. But I think as we combine the phrase, by the grace of God, and this whole region of churches, we know that there's a God thing happening. This was before the age of telephone and telecommunications and internet and tweeting and email and all that stuff. So somehow all these churches got this idea, we are going to give a gift to the people in Jerusalem. Paul is using this church as an example. Have you ever noticed that when God is involved in something, that phrase, by the grace of God, by God's gift, by the power of God, Something unusual is going to happen. Sometimes things go really weird. God doesn't always work the way we think things ought to work. Um, And there's testimony over and over and over again throughout Scripture. Um, You remember... Sorry, I have to find my notes here. (laughs) Okay. So, think back about Noah. What did God ask Noah to do? Build an ark, yeah. So here we have this farmer, maybe rancher, we don't know what he did exactly, but he had to take his time away from everything else that he knew he should be doing to be out there building an ark on the flat prairie. It didn't make sense, but that's what God asked him to do. But Noah trusted God. Noah trusted God to see him through. The Old Testament is filled with examples like that. The the taking of the city of Jericho. God said, march around this city, what? Seven times. Six times, march around. Seventh time, I want you to shout and blow your horns. God was involved, but it didn't make sense. We have examples of talking donkeys of dipping so many times in the pool for healing. And so, as we we look at this passage, keep that peace in mind that when God asks us to do something, it doesn't always have to make sense because it's God asking, asking us. And it's being done in the power of his spirit, not in ours. Verse two, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. How does that work? Persecution and poverty welling up in joy and rich generosity. 
As we look around the world, we, we get a glimpse into what it might be like to be persecuted. To have our women and children uh, stolen away. To be shot in the streets. To be hassled. To be ignored on the streets. Nobody comes to our table at the marketplace because of our faith in, in the Lord. We have no concept of that in our everyday life. But the Macedonian Christians were under this kind of persecution. They were an isolated people. Not only did they have to fear for their physical safety, but they were struggling economically. They struggled for food. They struggled just to make ends meet. And so in the midst of this severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And this was entirely on their own. The word of the Lord. This was entirely on their own. How does that work? <clears throat> they gave as much as they were able and then some. Okay, let, me, let me, as Solomon would say, under the sun, without God, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> that's stupid financial management. But in this case, that's what they did because they believed in God and because they trusted God. Unless we're the government and we can print all the money we want, spending like that won't last long. Why would you give money to someone you didn't even know thousands of miles away? You just heard about them from some roaming evangelist. Why would we we be taking up an offering for, for those folks? So they looked at their checkbook and said, well, I've got $100 left in there. My expenses come to 120. I think I'm going to give 50. Any business people here? Any accountants? This must make you squirm. <laughs> but that's the kind of giving that these people, that Paul is saying these people did. So when they were told, were they told they had to give? Were they made to feel super guilty? Paul says they did this entirely on their own, that there was some kind of internal motivation that these folks had within them. They trusted God. They stepped forward with a gift and they believed that God would see them through. Let's move on to verse 3. Excuse me, verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Wow. They urgently pleaded with us so that they could share. No wonder Paul was using these folks as an example. (laughs) They really had an attitude, a positive attitude, and they had a willingness to use whatever God had given them in the service of his kingdom. And he was saying to 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 the Corinthian Christians, you know, if these Macedonians can do it, you can do it. Corinth was, was this centrally located city on a, on a big isthmus that was the east-west um, travel route for, for merchants coming and going. And it was a very well-to-do region. And Paul understood this. And so he's using this church who went way out of their comfort zone and they're giving, past, they're, they're giving um, habits to push the Corinthians just a little bit. 
So, <clears throat> when was the last time any of us um, went chasing after the offering thing? Wait, wait, I want to give more. <laughs> I, want to, I want to empty my checking account. Well, that's the kind of enthusiasm that Paul says this group of people had. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we get a sense of what their heart was about and what their motivation was like. And I would suggest once again that the only way that people can do that kind of uh, giving is if they trust God, if God was in it, if God was behind it. So Paul's, Paul goes on in verse 5. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. I think there's a real key to this passage right here. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to Paul and his cronies and to Paul's um, efforts in terms of ministry. They did what was right in God's eyes without counting the cost. It's sort of like that definition of agape or agape love. How do you pronounce that? Anybody? Agape? Agape love? The, the, the definition that I've heard is, is seeing the need and moving to meet the need without counting the cost. God's love, Jesus' love. Seeing the need and moving to meet the need without counting the cost. So they wanted what God wanted and they gave him first place in their lives so that by putting finances in his care, they trusted him with the outcome. So there's lots of examples of heroes of the faith putting their trust in God and trusting him with the outcome. Let's go back to Noah. What he was asked to do didn't make sense at all. He was taking away from, time, from things that would have um, been really important for him to make a living, just to provide food and, and shelter for his family. And yet he was out there working on this silly boat. He becomes the laughingstock of the community. And I would, I would guess that nearly all of his time and resources were invested in trying to make, get that boat ready. Do you remember Bill Cosby? And he used to have that, that uh, monologue about Noah's kind of questioning, do I really have to do this? And God says, how long can you tread water? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't do it justice, but <laughs> yeah. Somehow Noah heard the voice of God and he knew the voice of God and he trusted that voice and did what God asked him to do. The people of the day probably said he's gone mad, he's gone crazy, um, and yet we see in the end the results of God's trust in God. He, got, he, he forgot about his farm, he forgot about everything that he had, and put his focus on that boat, and it was God and that boat that provided him with the gift of salvation for that time and that place. A whole new generation, a whole new world started up because of God's faith or Noah's faith in God. I, I like this one. Peter, in the New Testament, you know, where he gets out of the boat, he sees Jesus walking on the water, and it's, 
It's stormy and the winds are blowing and the waves are lapping up against the boat and the disciples are fearful. And so Peter violates the first rule of being a successful fisherman and that is, you've got to stay in the boat. Well, he steps out of the boat and he looks at Jesus and he's walking on the water. What an amazing act of faith. Stupid is all get out, but an amazing act of faith. And as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he starts looking at the waves and he starts a little bit of worry, he starts to sink. Boy, what an example for us. There's a book written about if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. And it just challenges us to get out of our comfort zone. Maybe to, to live and work just a little bit outside of our budget <laughs> if we're talking finances. But it's about trusting God. There's one more. Jason, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the children of Abraham. And as they traveled through the desert, God provided for them with this manna and quail. Later, they trusted God to get him to the promised land, and they sent out these spies. Ten were bad, two were good. I love that little song. So, ten of the spies came back and they said, those guys are big. They're like a Rudy with six inches added onto them. And their cities are well fortified, and there's so many of them, there's no way we can take that land. Good observation. Nobody could argue. But two guys came back and said, you know, I think we can do it. God said we should do it. We should do it. Well, it was a It was a democracy, apparently, because we know how it turned out. And God said, okay, no problem. You can spend another generation wandering around in the wilderness. Don't trust me. There are, I think, consequences to not trusting God. And I think we can find that in scriptures. There are consequences to not trusting God, just as there are consequences to trusting him. Well, So then in verse 7, we read on, it says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love, in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. He's talking to the Corinthian church. You guys are already doing great. You have so much, you've done so much. You've got your act together. But now I want you to add one more thing to this Christian experience of yours. And that is, I want you to trust me with your finances. I want you to excel in this habit, this grace of giving. And that was his challenge to them. <clears throat> and then I like the next section. It says, I'm not commanding you. I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. But, Paul has that amazing use of that word, but. It says, this is a test. You know, this, this is a test of your sincerity. It's a test of the sincerity of your love. And I'm comparing you and what you do with these Macedonian Christians who are giving more than they should, more than they're able, out of their persecution and suffering and poverty. It says, it's just a little test. Have you ever thought about whether or not our giving is a test? us? How do we do? What kinds of gut 
how many feelings do we have when we, when we come up against something that, wow, I'd really like to do that, but I'm not sure I have enough to do that. I'd like to give to this, but I'm not sure I have enough to do it all. We, we, have, we do, we wrestle with that stuff, don't we? So, I'm not telling you what to do, but this is a test. Um, it's a test of your love for your brothers and sisters. It's a test for the love of Christ. It's a test of your trust in the Lord. And then he slam dunks the whole thing. This is, a, this is an argument, an example that none of us can, can uh, argue with. He's, he uses the, the example of Jesus, who being found in the very, in the very um, image of God, left that place in heaven and came to earth, gave it all up so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have the gifts of life, the spiritual gifts. And he says, Jesus is the ultimate example of giving. And by stepping out and trusting God in that process, Jesus knew in faith, with trust, that God would look after him. And he did. So we move on, verse 10. Here is my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. I'm not telling you what to do, but here's what I think. Last year, last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it in accordance to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what ha- one has, not according to what one does not have. Paul is saying, I'm not expecting you to do the impossible. I don't expect you even to do what the Macedonians have, have done, which is the ridiculous, to give more than you can. He says, just give what you can, but give it willingly. He says, the willing gift is acceptable. And he doesn't say this, and I don't know if this is true, but, is, but does, does that mean that the unwilling gift is not acceptable? I don't know. Jason, would you pick that one up for me? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But we do know that willingness is a, is a key factor in terms of what makes our gifts acceptable to God. It's the willingness. It's the compassion. It's our love. It's our sincerity and, and desire to do God's stuff. Then he goes on to a section that I, I have not studied completely and I think it warrants more, more time. Um, but he talks about equality. Says our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need, and I, and we can get that. That's we we talk about pay it forward. We have resources now. We invest it, and the next thing you know, that money's coming back over here, and the next thing you know, it's coming back over here, and. It, and who knows where it's going to end up, but we pay it forward. And so those who have wealth are able to share with those who don't, and someday maybe that's going to turn around. And, and we, we get that. We see that happening in our own congregation, in our own community. But then he says, 
well, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that they in turn, in, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So he says that twice. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And I've, I've wrestled with this, and I, I don't think he's saying, let's make everybody equal. Because we are all created in very unique genetic packages. We all have different gifts and talents. Some of us, like one of my former bosses, should not be trusted with petty cash. He was a leader, but he was not a finance person. And so, you know, I I would say, use your credit card. Do this. I'm not going to give you petty cash because you never bring me a receipt. Um, Some of us are good money managers and some aren't. Some of us are leaders, some aren't. And we have different gifts throughout throughout the church. And I don't think he's saying, let's equalize all the financial resources in the church so that everybody has just enough. Because a little bit later you'll see that he says, <clears throat> those that have invested much will also get a significant return on their investment. So, so we need the people in our congregations who have wealth because they know how to manage it and God knows how to bless them. They know how to invest it in kingdom work and God does. But what we don't want to forget is that God has a mission out there for us to use those resources for his purposes. And so that's a, that's a tough one sometimes, but I think that's what he's getting at when he talks about this equality. The one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered too little did not have too little. That's a, sort, a reference back to the manna. And God set it up so that when... When the Israelites went out to collect their manna in the morning, they would get about two quarts, two liters, and that would be enough for one person for a day. But you know, there's always an entrepreneur in the, in the, in the midst. Somebody goes out and says, you know, if I collect four quarts today, I'll, I won't have to get up in the morning so early. And maybe, maybe I could even sell it for a shekel or two. Well, God saw through that really quick. So those who collected just enough had just enough. Those who collected too much, they got worms. They got worms. That's what was left of, of the manna. The only time you could collect more than two, one day's worth of manna was on the day before the Sabbath. So you could collect two days' worth there. Now, how does God do that? So that's, that's Paul's illustration of equality. Well, we jump over to chapter 9. We're almost done here. Look at verse uh, 6 through 8. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What a promise. What a promise. And I don't believe this is, this is the, the cash gospel. You give money, God's going to give you money back. He's talking about much greater things as, as your prayer and, and comment this morning. Max Lucado, he's not talking about if I give God a car, will he give me a bigger car? <laughs> he's talking about kingdom things. He's talking about kingdom blessings. Later on, um, I'll just keep reading. 
as it is written, they, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the, the harvest of your righteousness. That, that's a key piece there. And I think that's why we want to celebrate the people in our, in our congregations who, who actually have done well. Because they're the ones who are spreading the extra so that some of us can get by. Um, and yet all of us need to take part in this faith journey around doing what God asks us to do, about investing in kingdom stuff. He says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for, the food, bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge your harvest of righteousness. What is a harvest of righteousness? I don't think he's talking about the bank account. I don't think he's talking about building bigger barns and stuff. That may be. But I think the harvest of righteousness is knowing that you're doing right things for God. It's about investing in kingdom stuff. Treasures in heaven, as, as Tracy was talking about this morning, the children. Harvest of righteousness is about treasures in heaven. And it's about being the example to the community, being the example to other churches, Christians, and being... Um, an example to the principalities and the powers of the heavenly places that Paul talks about. That the church's job, doing God's work, is to be an example to all these. A harvest of righteousness. Doing God's stuff. And trusting him by doing his stuff first that he's going to look after us. Well, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. To God be the glory when we are able to get our priorities straight. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. That the good news is proclaimed when we have our priorities right. That God's love and tender mercies are seen throughout the community and throughout the church. And in their prayers, people will pray for you with their hearts. And they will go out to you. And because of the surpassing grace, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Again, it's a reminder that this stuff, just like in the Macedonian church, does not happen without God's power. It doesn't happen without our submitting to Him, submitting everything to Him in the first place. That is a key. Remember Macedonians, they, they committed themselves to the Lord first and their stuff. This is a real challenge for us, isn't it? Because we, we have stuff. Um, some have said that we're probably one of the, we're in the 95th percentile of the world's most wealthy people around the world, if you look at it. Um, yeah, we have stuff. But God isn't saying you have to empty the bank account. Did you notice that those who sold everything in Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost for the early church, that a few years later, that church is still in poverty. I think, I think God gives us wisdom to manage the resources that he has, to be stewards of the resources, to invest the resources that he's given us, so that there's also some sustainability 
then he promises that there will be a return on our investment. A harvest of righteousness? Yes. He provides the seed. He provides the growth. The last sentence, I think, will be my, my closing comment. As we think about these things, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So many gifts we can be thankful for. Thank you for your time.